life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Later on this hour, Carl Stead, CK Stead. Uh, he gets two poems because he's CK Stead and tells us why they're good. He just picked two that he really loves. That's the whole idea of the piece. Next week, it's going to be Steve Braunius. Uh, he's a great writer, written so many good books. Roosters I've Known is one of them. Next up, though, as usual, John Dibbig and his Letter from America. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. US is the least qualified guy. No, we're not. We're but qualified. What they are doing today. <laughs> Yet, this guy is telling us it's better for US to shut up. Hello, John. Look what this guy's doing. Who's this guy? John, <laughs> the big letter from America, because you can. Because I can. Good evening, Graham. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you very much. Good on you. Isn't spring lovely? I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a great time. Great yeah. time of the year. The, you always get the unexpected cold snap, which happens every year. Yeah, every year. People go nuts here like it's not, you know, like it snows down south or something. They go, whoa, whoa, and you go, every freaking year. Yeah. I've been here 38 years, and it's <laughs> every year. <laughs> All righty. Um... <laughs> Right, squirrels and frogs. Squirrels and frogs. But before we get to that, just yeah. a quick note. Stanley Matthews was the other guy in 1881, the Supreme Court justice member. I uh, said that he was the... Not John Wilkes Booth. No, he was a controversial one yeah. that was very close. And Kavanaugh was the second closest after this guy. And I looked him up, and whoopee dingo... Rutherford B. Hayes nominated him, yeah. and the big controversy was that both those guys went to the same school together. Oh. That was a big controversy. So, so he dropped him off, and then James Garfield nominated him the next one. He became president, and he won 24-23. Oh, okay. So, so it was, James, it was the, James Garfield, who was assassinated. Yeah, who was assassinated. And the interesting thing about Garfield was they screwed around with the bullet wound so much, they actually, the doctors killed him. If they would have just left it alone, yeah. it would have been fine. But they kept digging their fingers in there. And Medical tried, practices were just a hell of a lot of guesswork in those yeah, days. In those days, it was not, yeah. So, yeah, so he actually ended up dying from the infection. Oh, other than the bullet awful, yeah. yeah. And then oh, Chester Ray Arthur, the um, vice president, took over. Yep. Yeah, oh, very good. One very of the lesser-known presidents, isn't he? Yeah, but Chester? I love the name, Chester Arthur. Chester A. Arthur, Arthur. isn't yep. it? It's yep. always that. But anyway, Kavanaugh won 50-48, to 48, and this Stanley Matthews won 24-23, so he won by one, so there you go. But anyways, You we'll... said Stanley Matthews, right? Yeah. Now, to every person who knows anything about football in England... That would be... That's a big name. That's a big name. That is a very, very big name. He played for Blackpool, and there's an FA Cup where he's just miraculous. It's, oh. I think it's 1953, Blackpool versus somebody or other. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's called the Matthews Cup. Well, there you go. So there, there you go. There you go. That's the other Stanley Matthews. All right, now we'll go to Squirrels and Frogs. Okay, now this is for my Only in America file. I just don't get this, you know. Um, in America, we are so flipping neurotic. You can take animals as an emotional comfort on a plane. If you if you feel you got problems flying, you can take an animal on the plane. You can take a Llama? dog. You can take a, a cat. There are certain things you can't take, and one of them happens to be a squirrel. Some old lady brought her squirrel on the plane, and they said no rodents. Why 
are you allowed to take an animal on the play? This is stupid. The stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't know, but that's I'm, I'm saying. You're allowed it's, to bring an animal of your choice. For emotional relief. Jeez. If you're dependent on an animal. But this old lady, this is a classic, this old lady... I don't know how old she was, but she was in a wheelchair, yeah. and they kicked her off the plane, and as she was being wheeled out, she flipped everybody off. <laughs> right, because she wasn't allowed, wasn't allowed her squirrel. She wasn't allowed Rocky on it. Rocky, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Rocky Ricker. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But anyway, and then now the frog, the, the dusty gopher. Yes, I've been wondering about okay, this because now, now Kavanaugh's in. It's Kavanaugh's the first in. thing he's got to address. But we don't know that. We don't know that. The frog. They just, just so people didn't hear, it's a very rare frog. Very rare frog. And and it's, it's called the dusky gopher, gopher frog. And it's Louisiana. Small. Louisiana, Mississippi. It's in that region. Does it get to stay where it is, or can they dig up the place? Is the question. That, that's what they want to do. They want to plant trees and lumber and all that kind of stuff. Okay. But anyway, so there was a, it was the first on the agenda for the Supreme Court. There was only eight justices, and surprise, surprise, the four conservative judges voted for the lumber company. The four liberal judges voted for the frog. So that's why it's so important to have, like, a neutral guy in the middle at least. But, you know, Kavanaugh is strictly ultra-conservative. So if he gets a vote on it, you could kiss the frog's ass goodbye. So is but why, he might why didn't not. he get to vote? He's in, isn't he? He's in, but because they had already decided on it before he got in... Oh. They might leave it that way, and if they do, then the frog can croak again because if it's a tie, it goes back to the lower courts, and the lower court courts voted in favor of the frog. Okay. But if Kavanaugh gets a vote, I'm you, know, you can kiss the frogs, you know, bye-bye. Well, that's really sad really? for American politics because yeah. we have conservatives here in New Zealand. They'd probably be socialist pinkos um, <laughs> from the perspective of a Republican in America, yeah. but... There are plenty of conservatives who appreciate biodiversity and yep. the rarity yep. of animals, and, yeah. and the, you know but, they, but they've the got a place here as well. But the Republicans, and particularly the Republican conservatives, don't. They don't give a shit about anything but themselves. All right, they don't. And the free market. And the fr with the free market. And freedom of speech. Deregulate. Yeah, you know, deregulate. Mm. Yep. Reagan. Yeah. See? There you go. Yeah. Ronnie. Yeah. Very popular. <laughs> okay. ID, please. Now, this is the thing I want to talk about again because we're coming up three and a half weeks, uh, November 6th. If you're interested in American politics, mark that on your calendar. That's the date we vote for the midterms. All the senators and the House of Representatives, a lot of state legislatures and a lot of governors who don't get a lot of, you know, a lot of airplay. But I'll tell you why they are very, very important in a second. It's not easy to vote in America. We're, we're one of the only countries in the world that discourage voters by the thousands, by the tens of thousands. Everybody else is trying to beg people to come and vote. We, we turn them away. We make it goddamn difficult. And it's not we. It's the Republican Party, the biggest assholes when it comes to this kind of thing, going anywhere in any political circle, anytime. Georgia, catch, catch this. There's a Republican running for governor. There's a Democrat running for governor in Georgia. The governor that runs, that is re in office now, he controls the vote. He's in charge of the voting process. Uh, how, uh, how unbelievable is that? He, he, he's in charge of it. What control does he have? 53,000 black voters registrations are on hold 
because when you fill out your registration form, if you had, if you said your name was Tom with a small T and it's on the official document and you just happened to put a capital T or you missed a hyphen or you missed anything, they could hold it. And he's got 53,000 registrations on hold. 78% of those are black voters and black voters vote Democrat. And that's exactly why he's holding them. But the fact that he's running for the same office and he can control the electoral process is unbelievable. Conflict of interest. Mm. Here's another prime example. And this happens everywhere in the states. In North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp, a Democrat, won by less than a senator. She won by less than 3,000 votes the last time. She's up for re-election. North Dakota is a very red state. Trump won it handily. So the voters, the GOP, they're in charge of the state legislature. They make the rules. Now, all of a sudden, this year, they've decided that everybody has to have a postal address, a street address. You can't just have a P.O. box. You have to have a street address. Well, guess what? The post office doesn't give street addresses to all the Indian reservations that are in North Dakota. So all those Native American Indians are wiped off the rolls. And guess who they voted for last time? Mm -hmm. Heidi Heitkamp, the Democrats. And this goes on in New York. It goes on all across America. Every state has different rules. And when the Republicans control it, they try to purge the rolls. They do it every year. Now, in the Constitution, every 10 years, you have to redraw your districts. Mm -hmm. It's in the Constitution. This is coming up again, and that's why state legislatures and governors are so very important because the state legislatures are the guys who draw up the districts. So if there were a Republican— What's the district? This is called gerrymandering. Oh, yes. So if you live in, you know, some uh, a suburb in Pennsylvania, might be the 6th district, they draw the lines, they look to see where all the Republican voters are— and they draw the lines of the district around those Republican voters. So if you're a Republican running in that district, you can't lose. Mm. It's impossible. Mm. And if you control the state legislature, then you control the gerrymandering. And that is... Do it, Democrats it, do this as well? They do. Yeah, not, okay. as, not as much as the Republicans. Republicans okay. are total assholes about this. They, mm -hmm. make, they make no pretense about what they're doing. But, you know, you got to... Yeah, the Democrats do it a bit. So you got to get your state legislatures. You got to get control of that, and then if you can't do that, you got to get control of the governorships because the governor can veto a district. If you you know put up a district that's just total bullshit, yeah. you can veto it. Looks but, like a salamander or something. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. they got all kinds of curly cues. They go, you go, what the hell, man? I mean, you live here on one block, and there's a tail that curls around about 15 miles yeah. because it's all Republicans. But the point is, folks. Don't believe the bullshit about everybody can vote and it's a democracy in America because it ain't. If you're poor and you're black or you're Latino or you're Asian, you are being discriminated against by the goddamn white Republican Party. Okay. It does seem an, the antithesis to so much of what your country was founded on. Exactly. And that, but the that's, sanctity of citizenship. Yep. That's, that's our partisan politics. It's become very tribal in that regard. You look at Trump. He won Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Minnesota. Those are all 70 to 80-plus percent white states. That's mm -hmm. who votes for him. 
And then they're trying to pick off the other areas and gerrymander them so that they can get the Republicans in the state legislators and control who goes to Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ain't easy. Uh, it ain't easy. There was a cheat. And the reason I, I saw this particular article about Georgia, this is a black teacher at a college, at a university that was teaching and getting kids to vote, to register. And she saw that her registration was on hold. Because some over some grammatical error. I mean, it just, it's pathetic. Mm. And if you're a Republican, shame on you. You guys are assholes. Yeah. Well, I think it's just another reflection of, of the mental illness of race that is happening, is your country is afflicted with. Yeah, we have not ever got over it. And it's, and it's, and it's worse I now. Think a because, lot of people are making it worse. Well, a lot of people, the orange guy in the Oval Office is making it worse because he's a white supremacist, a misogynist. Oh, yeah. You're he, right. he, he, well, he is. God damn it, he is white. Don't give me any bullshit. He's, not a he, white he's a white supremacist. He supports them. When Charlottesville, when they had the, the, the rally in Charlottesville and they had all those asshole guys saying, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Trump said, oh, there's good people on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's good Nazis. Yeah, right. Tell me about it. Jamal Khashoggi. Oh, wow. This is a story. Jamal Khashoggi, um, he's a um, uh, Saudi Arabian, a Saudi Arab, I guess. He was, was he a Saudi Arabian or a Saudi Arab? He's from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, he's living in the States. He's a permanent resident in America. And lives in Virginia. He writes a column for the Washington Post on their editorial uh, page. And he's um, uh, a critic of the government of Saudi Arabia. Not 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 over the top. I mean, he, he does write. Why not? Well, he does write some positive articles, but he writes a lot of critical articles, holding the government to task for things that they do. Good luck. Which, yeah. And then, so he goes to Turkey, and he wants to get married. So he goes into the Saudi consulate in Turkey, and that's it. He never comes back. No. Nobody's seen him. In bits, apparently. And, well, apparently he's been killed and, and, and hacked up and put in suitcases. They had 15 Saudi uh, people fly in uh, to, the, to the consulate, and then the next day, or the, shortly after that, they flew out. Now, the Turkish authorities say that they have proof, audio, video, audio and, and video footage of this, and what they think happened was that Kosogi had an Apple Watch on, and he set it to, you know, whatever they, you know, to record stuff, and possibly he recorded his own death, and then it went on iCloud, and that's that's how they think they got it, or the fact that, you know... They bugged it. They bugged it. Yeah. They bugged it. So the, the, the problem here is very big conflict of interest. Trump has had millions and millions of dollars of business interest with Saudi Arabia for years, going way back. I mean, one time when he was in trouble... He got a Saudi prince to buy one of his luxury yachts for $20 million. They buy apartment complex. They buy condos. I mean, they spend a lot of money with this guy. And so Trump is going, well, we don't know. We don't know. And then now, and then this is the other thing. Now, Trump just bawled out lied about this. Once again, what a surprise, folks. He's talking about a $110 billion arms sale with Saudi Arabia. And he says, I'm not going to cancel that over some guy getting, you know, in trouble. You know, he's not a Saudi U.S. Saudi Arabia has been your ally. Yeah. They, it, this is just. Very, very, very oh, difficult, very God. difficult relationship. Very <laughs> difficult. Yeah. But the thing about <coughs> the $110 billion arms sale is, for one thing, Trump had nothing to do with it. This was started during the Obama era, and they sold $25 billion worth of arms to Saudi Arabia. All the rest of that is intent, like on paper that might be. 
It's proposals. It's nothing signed. And Trump is going around saying that, you know, Russia's going to buy it or China's going to sell it to them, which is another bullshit lie because there is no sale to start with. But even if there was, Saudi Arabia buys their military hardware from America. And if you buy shit from Russia, that doesn't comply. It just doesn't mix. You can't you can't transfer the, the two. So there's no way that Saudi Arabia is going to buy Russian crap and Chinese crap and then have it with American stuff. It's just not going to happen. But that's, exactly you know, once again, here's Trump, you know, because... You know, the Congress wants to put sanctions on Saudi Arabia, and Trump wants no part of it, no part of it. Then you throw in the Jared Kushner angle. His son-in-law has a deep relationships with this Mohammed al Sindbin, mm -hmm. who is the leader, another young, I think he's in his 30s, prince, and he's the guy that ordered this this killing of Khashoggi. So it's it's a real mess. It hasn't been solved. This is a developing story. We'll see where it goes. I think it's the two most despicable nations on the earth uh, have intersected here, Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Turkey, yeah. You, you, and, when I first heard about this, I thought, God, it's not beyond Turkey to pull this off. Yeah, exactly. And blame Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, I doubt it. You know, I, I don't. Doubt it. I don't think that. Because but, you know, it was just it came to mind. Yeah, no, it's it definitely a possibility. But the Saudis really wanted to get this guy. This this killing in Turkey was Plan B. They actually wanted to coerce him back to Saudi Arabia. Oh, nice. To detain him, but he went in, he went to Turkey instead, and and then they flew these guys in. So yeah, it, we'll see what happens. It, it's a it's a huge story. Has a lot of ramifications, and. Yeah, we'll it's see. up there with last week the bloke disappearing from Interpol. Yeah, yeah, we the finally head of Interpol. Yeah, we finally found. Well, we the Chinese said that there was some bribery thing or something he was being investigated about. <laughs> oh, oh, that's all right then. Yeah, <laughs> listen and believe. Yeah, yeah, we'll just detain yeah. him. Yeah, listen yeah. and believe. Yeah, exactly. Okay, two all-American assholes. Yeah, well, this is you know, there's two. One is the first one is Trump. He continually attacks the Department of Justice. He continually attacks the FBI, uh, people that are investigating him for crimes. Uh, and he continually attacks the freedom of the press. And, you know, I mean, his, his strategy here is, is plainly obvious. He attacks the freedom of the press because he's just knowing that the Mueller report's going to come out the investigator, the special counsel is going to come out and then he's going to say, see, it's all fake news. It's all fake news, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just fake news. Um, when you think about this, because a friend of mine uh, who's in America just went back to the States and he was talking one of, to one of his friends in the States and he asked him about, he was talking about the tax things that they came up with that Trump's been lying the whole time about how much money his dad lent him and where he got the money and stuff. And this guy in America said, no, that's all, that's fake news. That's all fake news. You know, no, no, and wouldn't believe it. Just wouldn't believe it. That's kind of where the state is because Trump keeps propagating this. So you got Trump just trying to undermine every institution in American democracy. Then you got, and I've said this before. I said this last year, and I've said this other years. Mitch McConnell, a republic, a Republican senator from Kentucky, who's the speaker, the majority speaker of the House and the Senate. He is. He screwed everybody. I mean, just everybody. First of all, he's the one that looks exactly like a tortoise. Yeah, he does. I mean, first of all, we'll look at the presidency. He knew beforehand that the Russians were interfering in this 2016 election before the election. And he told the FBI to back off. He wasn't going to make it public because it helped their guy. It would help the Republican. So he told them to back off. 
And that's just pathetic. That's just pathetic. Then in the Senate, he wouldn't allow Garrick Marlin, even who was Obama's pick for the nominee for the Supreme Court, he wouldn't even allow them a vote for over a year, for over a year. And catch this. There's a filibuster rule in the Senate where you can just talk and talk and talk and stall bills, okay? When Obama, before Obama's presidency, the filibuster rule for court nominations was used a total of 86 times. Mitch McConnell in Obama's eight years used it 82 times. He blocked every single judge, every one, every judge. So he just broke the Senate. He just broke the Senate because it's, it's just, you know, they, they didn't do that before. They let, you know, they let some go through. It's so barefaced and cynical, it's, that filibustering it, thing. You're not making a point. No, you're just, you're just stalling. Yeah. You're, just, you're just continually just, it's just bullshit. It's like at the end of one of your games, isn't it? This basketball thing. Yeah, that yeah we keep having timeouts. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're just bouncing it up and down and not doing anything, trying yeah. to get the, yeah. yeah. So then the third thing is he's just screwed the Supreme Court because he rammed through Brett Kavanaugh. There was so much controversy about it. More Americans at every poll disapproved of that nomination. Didn't matter to McConnell at all. He just rammed it through, forced it through. So he's affected the presidency. Mm -hmm. He's killed the Senate. And now he's made, <coughs> excuse me, he's made the Supreme Court a partisanship. He's, a, he's an unbelievable jerk. Unbelievable. And, and I mean, this is, just to give you a clarification, folks, Mitch McConnell, two things. When Barack Obama became president, Mitch McConnell publicly stated that his only job in the Senate was to make sure that Barack Obama didn't get a second term. That was his only job. I mean, that's pathetic. After he blocked Merrick Garland for over a year to get on the Supreme Court, he publicly stated that was one of his finest moments in the Senate. What a total bullshit asshole. What's the Chinese hoax? That's the climate. That's the climate. Trump thinks that the climate change is a hoax. Oh, right. And you had all these scientists come out from the U.N., big, huge thing, over 100 scientists come out, and, you know, kind of a doomsday clock and stuff uh, about the climate change. And, you know, they, they said, you know, a lot of it is, you know, America you know, with Trump's policies. And I gave Trump a little bit of applause mm -hmm. last week for his, you know, 3.5% unemployment. Yeah. But yeah. I said there's there's price to pay for that. And part of it is that, you know, they just deregulate everything. They just keep deregulating so that the American, you know, the, the Republican business people, they're just loving this. They're just loving this. Something well, I noticed when I traveled to America and, you know, just hang out yeah. with American people in their houses, there's a different expectation about energy. Yeah? Yeah. There's always more sugar in things. There's more energy oh, there's, in the food. There's sugar in bread. Yeah. I notice that now. Everywhere is air conditioned. You don't open a window to cool down or get a fan. Oh, no, or no, no. See, everywhere has to be 23 degrees. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's, I just don't. We don't have this expectation, and it's strange to come across it. It is, and it's strange for me now, I have to, I have to say, because wow. I've lived here so long. When I go back to America, I really notice the sugar in the bread yeah. and a lot of other things, but bread particularly, I go, wow, that's sweet. Isn't it? And then I notice that I'm always opening windows in the house, and everybody's closing them. Yeah. <laughs> now we turn on the machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, 
walking. We, you know, we walk here. You know, I go for walks all the time. Mm. In America, I wanted to walk like six blocks to the grocery store, and my sister said, oh, no, 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 you got to, I'll drive you. I'll take the, we'll take the car. Yeah, but it's not just a car. It's a huge, huge car. mothering thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All so right. anyway, uh, you know, so the climate thing, you know, I mean, and Trump is saying, oh, I've seen good reports. I've seen bad reports, you know, so it's no big deal. Uh, let me tell you this. Everybody blames Shell Oil, Exxon, Mobil, BP, the big gas companies and oil companies for pollution. People don't realize the five biggest food companies in America kill those oil companies for a carbon imprint. They kill them. Mm. And with this deregulation, they got no controls on them. They just pump shit into the air and into the streams and out. And they don't care. They are making America great again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me a break. That's what they're doing, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you've got a minute. Yeah. No, no more. Okay. Trump, Trump, and you're finishing with Trump? Yeah, of course. Okay. You know, he's an asshole at the top, he's an asshole at the bottom. Okay. And everywhere in between. This is the stupidest thing. You know, we had Kayon, uh, he, I keep, I call him Kayon, Kanye, Kanye. Kanye West. You know, yeah. black guy, rapper, blah, blah, blah. He came into the Oval Office and made a complete dick of himself, and everything was just kind of stupid. But then... And Trump was saying, you know, I need the black vote. I need the black vote. You know, you got to help me. You know, my, my polls will go up with the black community. And when I got this guy here, you know, and he, he just says this that stuff. And then the next day he goes to Ohio and he starts praising General Robert E. Lee as what a great guy this guy was. Uh, He's the guy that fought the Civil War and led the South to the Civil War to enslave the black guy. I mean, how stupid can you be? It's just beggar's belief. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy it while it's <laughs> Yeah. Okay. okay, John. Thanks, Graham. All right. Uh, after the commercial break, we're going to hit part one. We'll see how it goes. Poetry. You probably don't care much about poetry. I don't mind poetry. Don't, oh, don't try, don't try Look, to label me. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, a lot of people. It's not an unusual position to take that poetry, you know, duh, good, duh, you know, yeah. not really. But I think it might be um, surprising how many people do. And because of the baseball playoffs, I just read a poem. Mighty Casey. Oh. Mighty Casey at bat. Far out. You could be part of this. C.K. Stead, one of our oh. finest literary figures yeah. ever, yeah. Um, is up next. He's going to read us one of his favorite poems and tell us why. Very cool. Actually, he gets two because he's C.K. Stead. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Or Sam the Eagle. <laughs> it's very hard to tell them apart. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Read me a poem. We're going to have readings of poems, favourite poems, poems that are loved, that people rate, or are significant in some way, with the explanation why. It doesn't have to be famous people. It doesn't have to be high poetry or anything. It's just why you love something, and also to extol the virtues of poetry itself. But we won't blather on about that. I think the proof will be in the pudding. First up, I can't think of anyone better than a great pillar of New Zealand literature. I'll test his modesty, but I think it's only fair to say. C.K. Stead, Carl Stead, thanks for being first up on Read Me a Poem. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, especially relevant, I suppose not just because of your literary background. Uh, you were Poet Laureate up until 2017. Um, what did that mean? Yes, it's only a two-year stint. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything in particular. Not <coughs> required to uh, write poems for royal occasions or royal births. Um, so you're just really a kind of figurehead for poetry in New Zealand. And I, you can do what you like. I, I wrote a blog. Uh, I'm not a sort of blog person, but I did a, a regular blog all about actually things in my past that involved me with other poets and um, and writing about poetry and thinking about poetry. So I, I made a bit of a chore of it, really. It was quite hard work, but mm. then it seemed worth doing. It's been a long time since you've been at Auckland University, but um, just keeping up with English at universities and things like that, something... It kind of affected my worldview a little bit was an article, it's really short, that you wrote, uh, and it's in a compilation of New Zealand writing uh, called The New Victorians, where you found that literary criticism was shifting its criteria or standards to fit a social narrative. That was a long time ago. What do you think about that now? Uh, I may have... I may have changed my position slightly, but it is a long time ago, and I was quite worked up about it at the time. I did feel as though the study of English was being used, really, to create social outcomes. And since I was rather a purist about the study of English and thought it should be based on the recognition of what was excellent and demands of getting the best out of the students. I didn't really like it being skewed, as I saw it, towards favourable social outcomes. Well, I still don't like that, but I'm not so conscious of what goes on at the moment. I'm a bit more removed, not just from the university, but also from what goes on in schools. I suppose at the time I wrote that, I probably had children in secondary schools. Well, that was, I think, what, in the the 1980s that you wrote that? It could be said that it was a predictor of what was going to, you could say, going crazier. You could, but but I can't say it. <laughs> someone, someone else could say it. <laughs> but I'm not sort of up with the play at the moment. OK. Now, your latest work, 2018, The Necessary Angel, tell us about that. That's a novel set in Paris. I really intended my last novel to be an entirely New Zealand novel, but I was in Paris in Midsummer Day 2014 and was at a a dinner party and and went out into the streets and they were erupting with noise and music as Paris does on Midsummer Night. And um, it gave me an idea for what I thought might be a short story and it turned into a novel based on uh, a New Zealander, younger than I am, a sort of middle-aged, 40s, in his 40s New Zealander, teaching in the Sorbonne and married to a French woman with two children. The background to the novel is it covers the period midsummer 2014 to January, February 2015, and it covers exactly those events are the background of what went on in Paris and in the world during those months. So it begins midsummer night, it ends with the Charlie Hebdo 
killings of the cartoonists by the ISIS guys yeah. and the march that followed, the Je suis yeah. Charlie march. Yeah. So that's all background to the novel. But in the foreground are these characters who are the New Zealander and his French associates. Mm. So it's a novel, but it's got a kind of mystery in it. Painting disappears and what happens to this valuable painting and who's involved in, in what, what's happened to it and so on. So, mm. you know, it's a bit of a, a mystery, a bit of a social revelation, I suppose. Poetry in your life, where does it sit? Actually, The Necessary Angel is not my most recent publication. My most recent publication is a book of poems which I've just launched with the rather strange title uh, that Derrida, whom I derided, died. It's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, and it's the title of one of the poems. And it, it was Sam Elworthy at the press, Auckland University Press, who suggested... I make it the the title poem of the book, and and I did, and they've made a wonderful cover of it. I don't know whether you've seen it, but it's very colourful, and, and uh, it just draws attention to its to itself, of course. Okay, that's the latest. But throughout your life, literary career included, I think it's obvious for those that have read your stuff that poetry is a big part of it. You often preface chapters with pieces of poetry, yeah. somehow a distilled feeling or meaning or something that relates. Yeah, I think poetry's always really been the centre of my writing life. I began as a teenager at Mount Albert Grammar, discovering poetry and trying to write poetry, and I've always gone back to it. It's it's To me, it's the most demanding of the various literary forms, and it's the most rewarding so, yes, it has been the centre of my literary life, which has been my life. Test cricket versus T20. Billiards versus snooker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see. Well, what, what would, would poetry be? I can't accept poetry's T20. Poetry's the test cricket and everything else I through think, to T20. Yeah. I think, yeah, po- poetry's the test cricket, definitely. Yeah. 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 OK. CK Stead, I want you to read us a poem. And it's obviously silly with anyone we do this with that it's their favourite poem or the best poem. It's just a poem that you love, admire or is, somehow has meaning. The trick is explain why. So what are you going to read us? I've chosen two. You can choose one or the other. It's up to you. Oh, if you do a cracking job of the first, we might keep both. <laughs> so I chose two New Zealand poems. They're chosen essentially because they read well. They're both poems that are structured around rhyme, which means that they're easy to remember, so they're sort of both lodged in my head anyway. Yeah. The, the R.A.K. Mason poem is just a love poem, a very strange one because it's about a woman who has apparently left him and gone away to France and he's urging the son to look after her. So it's, it's a lyrical love poem. The Kurnow one is House and Land, which is a really rather gloomy view of New Zealand from um, a Canterbury point of view. But it's it's at the same time very picturesque. It gives you a great image of of uh, the New Zealand reality. So I'll begin there, if you like. Yeah. From the Penguin Book of New Zealand Poetry. Better put the right glasses on. <laughs> okay. okay, this is House and Land by Alan Curdo. Was 
isn't this the site, asked the historian, of the original homestead? Couldn't tell you, said the cowman. I just live here, he said, working for old Miss Wilson since the old man's been dead. Moping under the blue gums, the dog trailed his chain from the privy as far as the fowl house and back to the privy again, feeling the stagnant afternoon quicken with a smell of rain. There sat old Miss Wilson with her pictures on the wall, the baronet uncle, mother's side and one she called the hall, taking tea from a silver pot for fear the house might fall. She's all of 80, said the cowman down at the milking shed. I'm leaving here next winter. Too bloody quiet, he said. The spirit of exile, wrote the historian, is strong in the people still. He reminds me, rather, said Miss Wilson, of Harriet's youngest, Will. The cowman, home from the shed, went drinking with a rabbiter home from the hill. The sensitive Norwest afternoon collapsed and the rain came. The dog crept into his barrel, looking lost and lame. But you can't attribute to either awareness of what great gloom stands in a land of settlers with never a soul at home. OK. Take yourself to Professor of English Hat. What makes that resonate for you? Why is it a good thing? Well, uh, partly it's so beautifully turned. You move from the voice of one to another and, and each has a character, you know, it's like a set of characters. Yeah. Old Miss Wilson, who belongs in the past, the historian who's kind of objective and academic and the working guys who are really rather indifferent to the whole scene. And at the same time, it gives you the picture, doesn't it, the yeah. dog? But it's also rather, in a way you could say, out of date because it, it is such a gloomy view of New Zealand. It's a view of uh, a settler society, and let's hope we pass being a settler society, but, it, you know, it, catch, it captures that moment so beautifully. And on top of all that, it's musical. It's absolutely musical, as is the R.A.K. Mason poem. All right, the R.A.K. Mason. Be swift, O son, by R.A.K. Mason. Be swift, O son, lest she fall on some evil chance. Make haste and run to light up the dark fields of France. See already the moon lies sea-green on our globe's eastern rim. Speed to be with her soon, even now her stars grow dim. Here your labour is null and water poured upon sand to light up the howl which at dawn glimmers onto the land. And here you in vain clothe many coming sails with gold if you bring not again those breasts where I found death of old. Why bring you ships from that evil dis of a shore if you bring not the lips where I kissed once and shall kiss no more? O oh, son, make speed and delay not to send her your rays, lest she be in need of light in those far alien ways. That you may single my love from the rest, her eyes, her wide eyes, commingle all innocence with all things wise. Raindrops at eve fall in your last rays no lovelier. Her voice is the madrigal at your dawn when first birds stir. 
be swift, O sun, lest she fall on some evil chance. Make haste and run to light up the dark fields of France. All right, same thing. Explanation, why is it good? Well, it's, it's a bit of a weird choice in a way because it, it's an old-fashioned lyrical love poem by a New Zealander, but it's still, I suppose, a New Zealand poem in the sense that he's talking about France as a, a far distant place that he wants the son to go to. I don't know, to me, why is it good? It's just, again, the management of the lines, the management of the rhyming, and a, a kind of lyrical resonance, which I think is, to me, is is very moving, but it's also rather strange and old-fashioned. Mm, mm. I don't know what more I can say about it than that. It's a very strange poem, in a way, coming from Murray K. Mason, who was, you know, a hardline communist in the days when he wrote that. It seems so unlike the poem of a hardline communist, doesn't it? Is he writing it from somebody else's point of view? No, I think he's writing it from his own point of view. Okay. He's getting something out of his own personality that doesn't really accord with his politics at all, and yet the politics was, he would say, the centre of his life. Yeah. But I would say the lyricism was the centre of his life. Yeah, I see. I suppose you could also say that is some blunt honesty and self-perception, you know. It would have been nice to sing the Internationale, um, but he did this poem. I think so, yes, that's right. He's, he got something out of himself that yeah. probably surprised him entirely. Yeah, like an arch sceptic being scared of ghosts and writing about it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. OK, those are New Zealand poets. Uh, both dead now, of course, alas. Yeah. Yeah. What about poetry today? Have we got young New Zealanders coming through that are really showing talent at this? Is there a desire or are people that had would have had a great talent at poetry doing something else, like in an advertising agency? Well, there are an awful lot of people writing an awful lot of poems very seriously. Uh, I mean, it's partly the consequence of creative writing courses mm. now, <laughs> which I don't entirely approve of, but, I mean, they are they're established now in all the tertiary institutions and and in secondary schools as well, people are doing creative writing. When I was young, writing poetry was something you were rather embarrassed by and didn't talk about, uh. you know, especially if you're a chap, you know, you didn't want to be known that you actually, <laughs> your secret vice was writing poems. <laughs> but now everybody's doing it and it means that when uh, so much is being written, an awful lot of it's bound to be bad. Yeah. But on the other hand, they're unlikely to be real talents that get lost yeah. or they don't get discovered. So I know there's a lot of poetry being written and I'm sure a lot of it is very interesting and good. But at my age, I mean, I'm in my 80s now, I'm kind of gradually cutting off from worrying about that I should know about everything that's going on at the moment. I don't any longer. I don't keep up, you know? Yeah. All right, we'll just give you the chance to extol international poetry since the dawn of writing, the pillars of great poetic writing for you. Over the whole range? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's just the obvious. I still 
read Shakespeare with great pleasure and I figure so much in my consciousness and then the great romantic poets at their best, not so much Wordsworth but more Coleridge and Keats and those ones but also Wordsworth and then the moderns, Yeats, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound and then the more recent ones who are still... You know, not all that recent because they're dead, like um, Philip Larkin and and uh, Ted Hughes and those ones, and our own New Zealand poets, two of which I've just read. Uh, my head is actually full of poems because I've got a very good memory for poetry that I didn't set about consciously memorising, but I just read often and they stuck, especially when I was young. And anything that stuck when I I was young is still there. Wow. You know, uh, so to that extent, poetry has figured in my consciousness throughout my life, and it hasn't begun to to vanish yet. But but I will soon, so it'll vanish with me. <laughs> I hope not. Um, C.K. Stead, thank you very very much for being first cab off the rank, to use a barely poetic metaphor for read me a poem. Thank you very much. Yeah, v- very welcome. Thank you for having me. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Next week, it's Stephen Brunius in the hot seat. I think he's got a collection of poetry coming out. He might have curated or whatever the word is for putting it all together, uh, lining it all up. Anyway, he's going to give us a poem that he loves and tells us why. And we'll keep this going as long as we have interest and... (laughs) Oh, must get Sam Hunt. Must get Brian Turner. If you've gone to the draw for the Kakapo book, it's a lovely thing, um, be listening. After the commercial break, we'll announce the winner ahead of the news. Well, I hope you enjoyed the poetry thing. It could be a goer. What do you reckon? Um, and look, I may as well open it up to you if you want to have a crack as well. But I want a bit of an explanation before I just um, go head first in and say, tell me your favourite poem. Give me an explanation uh, on the email, what poem it might be and what you might say about it uh, because it doesn't necessarily have to be luminaries but we'll have plenty of luminaries telling us about their favourite poem or at least one of their, you know, one they like. Favourite's a bit silly, isn't it? Okay. Oh, no, you never know. Some people do have a favourite poem. Frequently, it's If by Rudyard Kipling. All right, also concerning email... And the lamest of segues, we've had them pile in for the Kakapo book and it's a gorgeous thing, so I'm glad plenty of people have entered through the Weekend Variety Wireless email form. If you included your postal address, you are in the draw and randomly selecting from all of the contestants. Come on down, Lance Reynolds. Lance Reynolds, is it of Christchurch? Uh, I'll figure that later, but that's you. I'll notify you if you've won via email as well. All right, after the break, uh, meshing with a bit of the World War I theme, uh, aligning with Glenn Harper's pieces, uh, taking us through the last days of World War I, called Jesus Make It Stop. Uh, we are replaying an outside of the, sta- the tale of Reginald Judson, a World War I Victoria Cross recipient.